Northwestern Medicine, relentless in their pursuit of better health care. Learn more at nm.org slash better. Happy Sunday to you. I can't believe it. I'm looking out the window and I don't see any rain or fog. Keep you posted on all the latest. Actually, I heard we're going to have some sunshine later this week. I sort of remember what sunshine looks like. Uh, we'll give you updates on that coming up. Uh, right now, though, time for our uh, weekly health check. Uh, this is uh, where we dig into some of the top medical stories of the week, answer your questions about uh, medical issues that you may wonder about. 312-981-7200 is our phone number uh, to call in or uh, to text in. And uh, this week, we're happy to have with us Dr. Jeremy Silver, who is the Medical Director of Emergency Medicine, Northwestern's uh, Kishwaukee Hospital in DeKalb. Dr. Silver, very nice to have you with us. Good morning. Morning, Dean. How are you? Doing very, very well. Uh, I have uh, such admiration for those who work in emergency rooms. Uh, That has got to be one of the most stressful uh, occupations in medicine that there is. Uh, yet I've 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 known some people personally who have, uh, you know, had that position, and they tell me the most gratifying uh, at the the same time. Do you find that in the case with uh, you and your staff as well? Well, I think so. You you encounter folks kind of in their worst day, uh, and uh, when it feels just so good when you can turn that around and, and turn it into a positive experience. So. Uh, yes, it certainly can be stressful, but we, we kind of are adrenaline junkies by trade. Uh, and so you live for those moments where you can rise to the occasion and, and uh, sometimes save a life. Yeah, it's, you know, the, the few times that I've had to go to an emergency room or took, taken a family member or friend, uh, and you, you sit there and, you know, you watch what's going on around you. And uh, I'm in such admiration, you know, the people who are able to like keep their heads together and literally save people's lives uh, when they come in. Not to mention, I'm not going to ask you for any, but you must see some crazy, crazy stuff in that emergency room. I, I do have some some uh, some very interesting stories, but that's the... Uh, that's the story of humanity. So it, uh, you know, it, it definitely keeps it interesting, yeah. and uh, and no day is the same. That's yeah, for sure. I can imagine that. Well, uh, you know, thank thank goodness you're all there. We appreciate it. I wanted to start off with uh, the uh, situation with King Charles, uh, who uh, just underwent surgery for an enlarged prostate. Um, talk to me uh, a little about that. That is something that most men. Uh, will have at, at some point uh, an enlarged prostate, right? Many will. I, I like to think of the prostate as uh, like a carton of milk. Eventually, all of them <laughs> will turn. Uh, and in fact, you know, looking at the statistics, one out of three men older than 50 are going to develop some symptoms of an enlarged prostate over time. Um, and I, I, would, uh, I would rush to say that, that enlarged prostate is not a cancerous condition, um, but rather just a function of the, uh, the organ just continues to grow, and, uh, and, and that can become problematic for men as they get older. Yeah, most guys uh, you know, know uh, what uh, an examination uh, is for <laughs> large prostate. It's something that stays with you when it happens. But uh, talk to me a little about uh, prostate health, 
uh, what it does when it's operating uh, it properly, and what happens as you get older when it does begin to enlarge. Sure. So the the prostate is a is a small gland uh, only in men. Women don't have them. Uh, it's roughly the size of a ping pong ball uh, and sits just below the bladder. Uh, and it and it encircles the tube uh, through which the pee leaves the body. So you you make pee in your kidneys. It travels down to the bladder where it sits. When the bladder gets big enough, uh, you have a signal to the brain that says time to go to the bathroom. Uh, and you urinate, and that pee passes through the prostate, kind of like a train through a tunnel. Yeah. Um, and that prostate, over time, uh, can can become thick. It, it it secretes lubricant, essentially. It's it's a lubricating gland. Um, without getting too into the into the details, um, it, it essentially creates lubricants for sperm, um, and uh, so that's what it does, essentially. Um, but over time, it, it, it enlarges concentrically. So from the inside out, it gets bigger and bigger. And so that hole through which the urine passes gets smaller and smaller. Uh, and it can get so enlarged that it can actually uh, block off the flow of urine entirely um, if it's not caught early enough. And, I, um, and so some of, the, some of the symptoms that you might have uh, related to that could include uh, dribbling or uh, nighttime urinating, uh, trouble starting your flow, uh, feeling like you can't empty completely, going to the bathroom multiple times a day. Those might be some some, some signs that you should have that checked. And I, I would imagine that it's either so uncomfortable or maybe poses some other uh, medical issues that when it becomes large enough that it requires surgery, much like what King Charles uh, just went through the other day. Correct. So I, I haven't seen the medical records for the king, but I, I think we can safely assume that he uh, had symptoms severe enough to warrant a procedure called a, a TURP, a T-U-R-P, that's transurethral prostatectomy, where they um, they can go in. And now there's a variety of different ways of approaching this uh, through through laser therapy and ultrasound pulses. Um, but, but essentially it boils down to um, putting the putting the patient to sleep and the, the urologist or the, the doctor that specializes in this area uh, would then go in with a scope and, and essentially rotor root out uh, that thickened prostate and create a, a nice big hole again for the urine to pass through. Mm. Um, and that's, that's kind of, that's the, the, the substance of it. Now there are medications that uh, folks can take when in the early stages of this process to try and uh, limit uh, or uh, reduce the likelihood that this is going to lead to surgery. Um, and those, those medications are, um, are readily available. So, so there are ways to kind of stave off that surgery, but in, in many folks, that's the final common pathway. And that's a, a different procedure than the ones that we've heard for prostate cancer surgery, where the, the prostate is actually removed uh right i mean it's uh I, I we've heard different cases i've heard of robotic surgery all kinds of surgeries i presume that those are done more for prostate cancer than enlarged prostate that's correct okay now are there any uh, uh lingering effects after a procedure uh like the king just went through is there uh discom- there's always a little discomfort i guess after a surgery but any lingering uh, uh effects after something like that so typically uh the urologist would place a catheter uh inside the penis that goes up into the bladder to help drain urine and allow for that area to kind of heal 
Um, it's not uncommon to have bleeding after the procedure. Uh, and so sometimes those blood, those, the blood can form clots, which can inhibit the flow of urine, and, and, and then you're kind of back to square one. So, so the, there is a period of time during which there's a catheter, and then the catheter is removed. Um, and typically, you know, most people will go home and, and do quite well over the next period of, of days and, and uh, essentially be functioning normally within a week. Um, but some folks will develop blood clots and, and have to have those treated. Um, rarely, uh, there, there, is, uh, there is a small risk of infection, and so rarely folks will come into the emergency room and say, you know, hey, I'm not feeling good. I had this procedure a couple of days ago, and lo and behold, they have a urinary tract infection. So there are some known risks. Um, but for the most part, by and large, people do very well. I know with uh, uh, prostate cancer surgery, sometimes there is a decreased sexual function. Uh, is that the case with uh, treatments for enlarged prostate? Certainly, any time that you're uh, that you're operating in the area of the sexual organs, there's there's risk. But I think significantly lower um, that those. Uh, I think we all know that prostate cancer surgery can can lead to potentially lead to to problems with with function of the, the sexual organs. Not not nearly as as common in the uh, with the the setting of an enlarged prostate. Very interesting. Well, I I hope that you know guys listening, uh, you know, take some of these this great information, uh, you know, store it away someplace. And uh, if you feel like you're presenting with any of those symptoms, check with your uh, doctors uh, to see what's going on. Because, boy, you sure uh, make it sound, Dr. Silver, like it's uh, something very treatable. It, it is very treatable. I, I would just tag on to that, that uh, some of the symptoms of enlarged prostate do cross over with prostate cancer. And so if you're having those symptoms, I'd really encourage folks to, to have a chat with your doctor, uh, get a referral to a urologist, and have an expert, uh, a specialist, um, who can help guide you on next steps. Yeah, and is all of this uh, now determined through blood tests as well? Uh, there was a digital test uh, that, as I say, you know, guys uh, remember <laughs> when they have it. Uh, but isn't a lot of this now determined by a simple blood test? Sure, there's, there's a screening test that many folks have heard of called a PSA, which is a, a, a blood test, which can certainly in some cases point in the direction of cancer versus no cancer. Um, and the symptoms are also very important. So we, we pay a lot of attention to whether people are having painful urination or blood in their urine. Uh, certainly folks that are having urinary symptoms and weight loss or bone pain, uh, those combinations of symptoms would be concerning. So it, it's uh, like anything else. There's there's blood tests. There's imaging that can be performed, and of course the the physical exam and, and history are king. Uh, no pun intended. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, uh, some some you know information that uh, you should store uh, in the event that you should one day need it. One of the stories that I found most interesting this week was uh, such hopeful news. Uh, not a cure, but a blood test. For Alzheimer's, it seems like in the last year, uh, we've had lots of stories uh, that we've never had before about helping to uh, diagnose Alzheimer's disease and not stop it, but slow it down. What, what's the latest on this? Sure. I, I share your enthusiasm, Dean. Um, this is very interesting. So Alzheimer's disease 
is, is a brain disorder that affects memory and thinking skills. Uh, and it's the most common cause of dementia uh, here in the United States. Uh, so, so Alzheimer's uh, is a terribly debilitating disease. It affects a lot of, of people here in the U.S. There's more than 6 million people in the United States that are living with dementia caused by Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and, and the number is projected to double over the next 20 years, so 13 million by 2050. Um, and uh, so the, the, uh, the symptoms of Alzheimer's uh, vary, but essentially you, you lose the ability to, uh, to, to remember uh, facts and details, uh, losing track of dates. Um, folks sometimes start to, to lose the ability to map their world. Uh, so they forget how to get home. Um, or just basic tasks such as reading or bathing or writing um, become difficult. Uh, so this classically, Alzheimer's been, has been diagnosed either with a lumbar puncture or a PET scan. Uh, so the lumbar puncture is a, a spinal tap where they take fluid out of your out of your spine and evaluate it under a microscope. Uh, so that's a very invasive test, and a lot of insurances won't cover it. Um, uh, likewise, the PET scan is a CT scan of the brain. Uh, that uh, involves some uh, radio tracers being injected into the bloodstream to identify uh, areas of activity in the brain. Um, that's uh, an expensive test. Um, it can be as much as $5,000. Um, again, it, subject to insurance, uh, and uh, not everybody can, can get it just based on where they live. Um, so some limitations to diagnosis um, just at baseline. This test is a blood test. Um, that's simply just drawing blood out of the vein, very easy and effective and cheap. And it was 96% accurate in identifying the elevated levels of protein that are associated with Alzheimer's. Um, so this, this potentially is a huge leap forward um, for folks in terms of access to care uh, and in terms of identifying, potentially identifying the disease early and tracking response to treatments of the disease. Uh, so I think there's a lot uh, to unpack from this study, um, but certainly a very positive study. The data is solid, and I think the neurology community is uh, kind of uh, really uh, uh, quite excited about what we're seeing here. Yeah, every every time uh, I read something about it, I just think about the, the many programs that we've done and the many people that we've talked to who uh, are or were living with Alzheimer's uh, that uh, it's it's just it's so cruel to the person living with it, of course, but also to their caregivers, uh, to their family members, to their friends who are sometimes completely forgotten. Uh, and it's uh, it, it's it's very very hurtful and very painful. Uh, I went through it myself with my mom and my brother, and uh, you know there was memory loss, but also what what that I never knew about dementia and Alzheimer's. Uh, the the loss of uh, functions that are controlled by the brain, uh, walking and things that I had never heard, at least associated with dementia and Alzheimer's. But it makes sense that if there is a, a breakdown of the functions of the brain, then some of the things that the brain controls, something as simple as walking or swallowing food, uh, you know, might also uh, be affected. So in, in my particular case with my family members, it was... Uh, you know, the uh, surprising and painful and difficult and the memory loss was, you know, as, as so many people have gone through that uh, as well. 
Um, let me uh, get to a few questions on our text line. Uh, one of them relating back to our prostate conversation. 630 area code says, are there studies or tests for continuous incontinence uh, control of urination after prostate removal? Mm. Yeah, I think um, that that's a, a very important question, and, and uh, to, to the uh, to the person who wrote in, I would say yes. Um, the, the the process of controlling bladder function is actually incredibly complex, um, and involves a lot of different systems in the body, including the brain, and of course the, the nerves that lead to the organs that actually manage urine. Um, and so without getting in, uh, too much into the weeds, I would say if, if anybody is having trouble after prostate surgery, um, that I would, I would go immediately to back to the urologist who performed the surgery um, to, to discuss those issues um, and to potentially get a referral to a subspecialist who there are folks that, that focus their entire careers on this sort of thing and um, could potentially be helpful. Yeah, this is uh, Jane, 312 981 7200, Jane, you're on WGN. Good morning. Jane, I just want to say your whole group is nothing but a ray of sunshine. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I would like to know why, when you go into the emergency room, why can't they separate us from people who have viruses and colds and the flu, from people who have broken arms and legs and other problems? To me, when you go to an emergency room, it's just a big uh, area where you're taking a chance of getting something else other than what you went in for. Yeah, a big waiting room. I, I, I would guess it's a uh, doctor. You you can answer better than I, but it's, uh, you know, it's probably a space issue, right? People have to wait someplace. Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. and Boy, I, I wish we could. Um, one of the issues is space, and the other issue is that many folks are infectious even when they're not coughing and sneezing and snotting everywhere. Uh, so you may be sitting next to somebody uh, who who is complaining of a of, of elbow pain, um, but they're they're breathing out viral particles into the world all the same. So um, it would be very difficult to truly isolate folks um, based on the fact that folks that are about to be sick may not know it. Uh, and so what we try and do is limit exposure by uh, supplying the entire waiting room with masks. We always suggest that everyone uh, wear a mask. They're extremely effective at, at limiting uh, the, the passage of, uh, of viral particles. Uh, additionally, uh, maintaining a, a, a vaccination status against uh, common agents such as COVID or the flu um, is, is extremely effective at, at uh Limiting illness, and if you do become sick, uh, limiting the possibility of severe illness or hospitalization. Yeah, I would say the, you know the uh, I would I would say the same for uh, riding on the L. I would say the same for being on a plane or being in any crowded place. So you know people people need to take precautions to uh, prevent getting something that the person sitting next to you might have. But also the person who, you know, it has the sniffles or a cold or a cough, they need to be uh, courteous out in public as well and responsible by, uh, you know, trying to not spread uh, whatever it is that they have. On the, Jane, thank you for your call. On the subject, though, doctor, how do you make the determinations of who gets uh, in to see uh, a doctor or nurse from that uh, dreaded waiting room? It's based on severity, I would think, right? 
That's, that's a terrific question. And uh, I, I wish that I could explain uh, in, in, uh, in, in fine detail to everybody I see exactly how triage works, but it's complicated. Um, so, you know, sometimes you go in there and, and it seems like nothing's happening. Um, everything's quiet and what's going on. Uh, meanwhile, on the back, we're uh, taking care of a critically ill person or a series of people, and we just try to keep things very calm and orderly um, so that we can focus on the patients. Um, and that's hard for folks because they don't see that. Um, you might be in the waiting room uh, for four hours wonder, you know, wondering why you can't just get in and have your cough taken care of. Meanwhile, there's been 10 ambulances that have passed through in that, in that period and, and a lot of sick folks that need immediate attention. Uh, so the triage process is very subjective. Um, this is why we have nurses um, up front in triage who try to see everybody as quickly as they can to identify who needs uh, immediate care. Uh, and, and sometimes it just is the way that the, the randomness of life works is you have uh, a number of patients come in with potentially high-risk illnesses who may seem like they're okay, uh, and they're going to be uh, shoveled to the back first because of the nature of risk. Uh, and so it's all about trying to risk stratify in the moment um, while also taking care of the patients that are there. Uh, and so what we try and do at, uh, in our facility is uh, round on the waiting room. So we have uh, medical staff who are there to take vital signs and check in with people. Uh, and we always, we always encourage people to come up and let us know if things are changing um, so that we can address it. Wanted to uh, share an, uh, a text that's come in from the 815 area code. Dr. Silver took excellent care of my mom in the emergency room last year. She has Alzheimer's and ended up getting an infection. He is awesome. Thank you, Dr. Silver. So I don't know how often you get to hear thank you, but here is someone that you took care of who is, uh, you know, very uh, grateful to you. Well, I appreciate that very much, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that we, we, did, we did our job well. Yeah, and here's uh, the 847 area code. This doctor is great. Have him back. And I hope we can. Uh, I hope we can, Doctor. You did a fantastic job. Really appreciate you joining us. Dr. Jeremy Silver is the medical director of the emergency medicine at Northwestern's Kishwaukee Hospital in DeKalb. Doctor, I hope we can talk to you again, and I hope you have a great Sunday. Thank you for joining us. Dean would love to come back. Thanks for having me, and, and have a great day.